I needed to not skate by for once in my life, and they didn't let me. At the end of the day, if you know that you don't feel good about the job, you got to be able to leave that behind. They just kept asking me to come back, and I truly love Milwaukee and Southeast Wisconsin. It's always great to be at WTMJ. This is WTMJ Conversations. Welcome to WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. Investigative reporter Judy Rakowski has spent decades writing for the Boston Globe and other major publications about subjects ranging from the church's sex abuse scandal to organized crime. During many of those years, she also made numerous trips to Eastern Europe with an elderly relative who survived the Holocaust. She writes about the secrets they discovered in her book, Jews in the Garden. And Judy, how did you come to write this story about your cousin, Sam? It started out as, you know, I wrote a big magazine story about my cousin, Sam. His last name is Ron. Now he changed it in Israel. When I was at the Providence Journal, I was just so struck by his resilience and his optimism and his ongoing connection to his home, despite everything. And those are traits and themes that really move me to this day. And I started traveling with him to Poland, and he got a tip about a living survivor. And amid all this tragedy... A living survivor to his family. Yes, yes. She's, geez, I don't know how many removals, you know, once removed, twice removed, she would be to me, but she was his, I believe, first cousin. But he grew up with more than a dozen first cousins in his town of 3,000. So that's the kind of total destruction that you're dealing with when you go back to something like that. So... I had just come from covering this really crazy crime in Rhode Island on my first trip with him. This lawyer, his wife, who was a librarian for Brown University, and their eight-year-old daughter were murdered. And it was a case that everyone was just obsessed by. It became a national story. I was working around the clock. I even did a feature about how moved the police were when they found the child's body. And it turned out to be the culprit was their investment advisor, and he killed them with a crossbow. So it was so weird. And I go right from that. I'm already exhausted and I land in Poland. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. That's more of the background of why searching for this cousin, Henya, really captivated me. And I'd just been involved with the murder of a small child who had been so moving. And then when you think, well, someone investigated all these things, right? These matters just weren't ignored. They didn't just you know, fade into the background. And so we started, and my cousin had had former schoolmates, people who'd done business with his family. Our family had a lumber yard back then, so everybody... In Poland. In Poland, and so we're first driving down from Warsaw. He's saying, we had, you know, lumber in every barn, every house, and he was still so proud and so connected to the place that so many bad things happened. It was incredible. And we were welcomed into homes fed multi-course meals. People were really glad to see him, and they would talk about anything but Henya. And when the topic came up, and even though I don't speak Polish, I could tell he was bringing it up, there was this reflexive phrase that I learned in Polish, neviem, I don't know. But it was so quick, and all the crime I'd covered and everything, like, people just don't do quick, I don't know, like... (laughs) And you watch body language, I would assume, as well. Very closely, (laughs) And And what was that telling you? Evasion. 
people looking down, you know, every face staring into the soup. You know, it just was everything I'd seen in suspects. I'm not blaming anyone we were talking to. I'm just saying that people did not want to talk about this topic. They would change the subject. They would tell Sam stories he'd heard a million times. And he wasn't always remembering to translate to me. So I was like, what do you say? What do you say? Nothing. Same old story. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. He was supposed to go out to work and he just got this intuition and didn't go out that day. And everybody else was shipped to Auschwitz. Author Judy Rakowski describes how her cousin Sam survived the Holocaust. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back. I'm Libby Collins. We're talking with Judy Rakowski about her book, Jews in the Garden. You talked about your cousin Sam, and he was born in Poland. And I think we need to describe what his life was as well, because he was a Holocaust survivor. Yes, he was in the Krakow ghetto and four Nazi camps. He was in Plaszow, which is the camp that was in Schindler's List. That's how people know that particular And you have other family members who were actually working for Schindler. Yes, I have. Well, they're a little more distant by blood to me, but I know these were all pretty close. And in fact, Sam's uncle Isaac helped get Thomas Keneally to write the book. And then Schindler's List. Yeah, Schindler's List. I think it was called Schindler's Ark or something. The movie was Schindler's List. And then when the movie came out, he went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington. He was in a larger audience, but he saw it with an audience that included Spielberg and the president, President Clinton. But Sam did survive, which many people, obviously millions, did not. How did he get through that? First of all, he was a young, healthy male. He was in his late teens, and that helped a lot. He was able to work, whether it was shoveling coal or any kind of factory job, and that having that physical resilience to start with was helpful. And he also will say there was luck. Every small gesture could be the difference between life and death. There was a particular chauffeur of a Nazi official who dropped a sandwich in his path on his way back from work more than once at one camp. You know, the kinds of things that people put into fiction stories or you think this can't be true. He had a supervisor in a factory that he worked in when he was in the Krakow ghetto, and she would take completed products and put it on his table to show he'd made his quota. Just little acts can add up to a lot. And also there was the luck. One day he was supposed to go out to work with this crew. This was a camp called Pianki, northeast of Warsaw. It was a labor camp by a munitions factory. And he just got this intuition and didn't go out that day. And everybody else was shipped to Auschwitz. It's just so hard to fathom that you're instinct or your whim one day could be the difference between life and death. And his story was really unlike so many others because he was able to reunite with much of his family after the end of the war. Both of his parents survived, which is a very rare story. His father was down to 90 pounds in Mauthausen, but he recovered. And my grandfather sponsored the survivors to come to Ohio and helped get lots of them, you know, employment. And it was, it's a time that I wasn't around, but it's hard for us to fathom that time, you know. And Sam's mother was in a camp, a woman's camp outside that same munitions factory, and they dared to pass messages in missile shells. Just think of that. 
if they would have got caught. And also she kept pictures of her two sons in her shoe throughout the war and onto a death march. Judy, I want to back up again because we were talking a little bit about the nine trips you took to Poland with Sam. And when you would get to these people who were so welcoming, it was like, oh, our friend Sam is back. And you were trying to find out more and more. What is the the tipping point for you where you decided, I need to do more investigation other than just talking to these people who know what happened but aren't feeling free to tell us the story? Well, it's something as a reporter that I've gone through a gazillion times. You know, at a certain point, you're not going to get blood from a stone. And of course, I'm oriented to documentation, records, testimony, the stuff that, as we know, people's memories can be inaccurate or compromised. So I, from the beginning, was going to the places where they kept records and trying to access them. Now, I started right after, I started going right after the fall of communism. And, you know, I went to the Jewish Historical Institute. And I remember this piles of papers heaped on desks. And I was like, oh, you know, this is, there was no order. And that was just survivor testimonies and all kinds of things. The courts there do not work like our courts. You don't just walk in and ask for a record or go to a trial. Now, things were opening up then after communism, but the the forms of our everyday kind of government function were truly foreign to the way things worked there. So I tried, I sort of developed a network of helpers, if you will. Sometimes people, these folks are called memory memory workers that are trying to help, you know, track things down. And it's a more informal network, but it can be a lot more efficient. And eventually, I obtained a huge court file that documented the prosecution and conviction of some 20 members of the Polish underground in the deaths of a whole family of our cousins. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. In times of war, people do things that their sense of right and wrong, shall we say, could be minimized. But these were organized efforts. Author Judy Rakowski describes organized missions against Jews by the Polish military. Now, more of WTMJ Conversations. I'm your host, Libby Collins. Let's return to our conversation with Judy Rakowski about her book, Jews in the Garden. What did that tell you? That members of the Polish underground, whom many look at as heroes during World War II, absolutely, were responsible for the deaths of your family. Not only responsible, these were organized military-type missions with orders given and perimeters set up. And, you know, that's what was so astonishing. In times of war, people do things that they're corroded, their their sense of right and wrong, shall we say, could be minimized. But these these were organized efforts. Now, I want to back up and say the Home Army, the ACA, did many valuable, heroic deeds. We could go on about, you know. The Warsaw Uprising. Yes, the Warsaw Uprising. They gave a lot of intelligence to the Allies. They did a lot of sabotage of German, you know, operations. But it was a vast 
somewhat loosely connected like everyone was in the partisans right uh it's you could it'd be difficult to find someone who did not claim that they were involved in some way and there were groups in under that umbrella that were openly supportive of the aim to eliminate Jews from the landscape the indetsia i in the book i go into all this and it's very well documented and there were groups fighting with each other um, so I'm not painting the entire Polish underground, which is one of the most successful undergrounds that we even can imagine. The French get a lot of credit, <laughs> but the Poles did a lot of great things, and there are more Poles honored at Yad Vashem for saving Jews than any other nation. So I just really want to make clear that I'm not painting with a broad brush, but facts are facts and things happened. And what these court proceedings these things happened under Soviet communism in a time when there was some twin goal of also getting back at members of the underground that had not been supportive of the socialist politics. We could go deep into this, and it gets very involved. But these 20 were convicted, and heavy sentences were meted out. Amnesty was granted pretty quickly. Very little time was served. It wasn't just the Dula family. There was another event. Sorry. So let's talk about the incidents that killed members of Sam's family. Because there was a family called the Dulas. Yes. And then there was also Henya's family. Now, which came first? These murders were carried out late in the war when liberation was expected in that geography quite soon. And so from everything we learned, there was a motivation to carry out this campaign so that the Jews couldn't come back and take their houses and businesses. Because so, when they went into hiding, yes, everything was taken from them. Everything was taken and people were living in houses and, you know, operating businesses. And we learned that in the spring of 44, the Rosenics were hiding in one place, not far from where the Doulas were hiding. And the Rosenics, that is... Henya's family. family, yes. And it gets confusing because they're similar in number and they were all adults in both cases. And in both cases, these folks had been in hiding for 18 months. Now, when you say in hiding... I'm talking about the doulas hiding in a cavern under a barn, and they cannot come out for fresh air. And when they ultimately were murdered, people in that place say, well, they came out and they came out of there hiding hole for air at night one night as if I mean it takes blame the victim to a new level if you will but that's how it's a close set area and someone could see them and reveal their location how were they murdered well first of all the wonderful man who'd been hiding them a man named Kashmir Soto for 18 months they'd had to squirrel away enough food to feed five extra people. Five adults. Five adults and not cause suspicion. And let me back up. So if you can picture this, the Rakowski Lumberyard was right off the main drags in Kevich Street in Kashmir Javielka. Just around the corner, the Rosenics had a hardware store. The Doulas had a dry goods store, textiles. You know, this was like everybody was right there. And they knew the people who hid them were people who had 
been customers or they'd had dealings with. And so that's how these families were more fortunate than those who didn't get a heads up that the Roundup was coming and didn't find a good hiding place. Good meaning secure, but pretty tough circumstances. Still ahead on WTMJ Conversations. I noticed this woman about my age, and she's looking so emotionally struck. And she said, I didn't know anything about this. I lived here on this farm. Author Judy Rakowski reveals why the book is called Jews in the Garden. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. And I'm Libby Collins. Our guest today is Judy Rakowski. Let's return to our conversation with the author of Jews in the Garden. How were they discovered? So a neighbor ratted out the doulas. And this, um, like I said, a very military-like attack came. Many, many people in that testimony said, I don't know who shot. I was securing the perimeter. These were not Germans. No, no, these are Poles. And that's a very significant point. The Rosenics, what Henya witnessed as the book starts and reveals, was that her family was taken to an attic window in the house and forced to jump out one by one and were shot from below. And she saw this. From everything I know, she saw this. And why was she not with them at the time? She was 16 years old, and that night was a rare time when her family had gone into the house because it was a very strong rainstorm. And she was a teenager, so she didn't join them. We don't know exactly why, but we can presume that, you know, she didn't want to. (laughs) So the story leaves off, and I know that there's a lot more to this, but her parents... Did she have two sisters? Two sisters and a brother. They were all killed in front of her eyes while she was hiding from the soldiers. What happened to Henya at that point? And I know that was your journey, trying to find out what happened to her, because it became apparent in these nine trips that you took to Poland that somebody survived this massacre. And it was Henya. Yes. But what did you find out? Well, I'm not going to do a spoiler here, but I will say that what's in the book, Cousin Sam and I had a little difference of opinion, which goes to partly how he survived and how he has healed. He could not bear to think that she wouldn't contact anyone in the family. And that's why he kept to this day, and I just was visiting him in Florida where he celebrated his 99th birthday. To this day, he's like, why did she get word to us? Why didn't she contact us? And I know a little bit about murder witnesses, and she was a murder witness. We have an eyewitness that saw her brought to the police station, asked to identify two suspects, and she refused, saying it was too dark which is pretty good self-preservation, I'd say. Was that before or after the end of the war? After the end of the war. She still didn't want to say. No. It was very dangerous for Jews after the war. And she didn't want to be in touch with anyone that would reveal her whereabouts. She saw a lot. You went back to where the bodies were buried. And tell us about the cherry tree. So I tracked down after my cousin Sam said he didn't want to participate in the search anymore. It really became more of my quest. And 
my journey, shall we say. And so I tracked down the daughter of the Rajashevskys who hid the Rosenics. And she said that everyone knew about what happened to them for miles or hectares around because they were buried beneath a cherry tree. And every spring, the cherry tree would blossom and then it would form fruits and then they would instantly turn black. So it was very superstitious, this cherry tree. And that's why on the cover, there's a few cherry blossoms to hearken back to that. I want to talk with you about some of the people that did cooperate with you and Sam. Yes. And did open up and tell some stories, including the, was it the granddaughter of the farmer that actually helped hide your family? And what decades after this incident occurred, decades after the war, there was still retribution against her family. Mm, To this day. So the first time we met the son of the man who was the real righteous harbor of the doulas, it was speaking to his son. And the second time, my cousin Sam, who's not a shy guy, he decided to do his Spielberg Showa Foundation oral history on location in Poland. So we go there with a film crew and an interviewer, and we're there, and the same guy is telling the story again, but on camera. All these people are watching. There's this whole entourage, and I kind of knew it already, so I'm not really closely involved. And I noticed this woman about my age with a young boy on the outskirts of this group, and she's looking so emotionally struck, and the, and the boy too. And so after a while, the interviewer came over and was talking to them, all in Polish, of course. And she said, I didn't know anything about this. I lived here on this farm. But at school, they would taunt me about the Jews in the garden. And I was called Dula, and I didn't understand it. And my father told me, when you get old enough, I'll tell you what they're talking about. And then he died before explaining it. So this was the beginning of a relationship that to this day, I just had a birthday last week, and I heard from Danuta, that woman who's, um, and, and, and we're going to Poland in a few weeks, and I plan to see that son who's now a father himself, and they're heroes to me, but they still get a lot. They have a stigma. Everyone who, who helped our relatives bears a stigma from endangering their community because the Germans threatened to kill everyone in a community if they harbored Jews. There's, it's very much in dispute whether that happened very often, but never mind. They're still being punished. And I asked Danuta, I said, what about these partisans? What about these killers who were given amnesty and they get full veterans benefits and, and nothing really happened to them? She said, oh, yeah, no, nothing. Nobody gives them a hard time. Just us. In 2018, the Polish government passed a law. And until I read your book, I had not heard this. Share exactly what that is. It's called a memory law. And they're not the only ones in the world that have such laws. But this is particularly pernicious because it's not just political. It is really calling facts lies. (laughs) That's the only way I could put it. It is against the law in Poland to 
say, write, publicly express that polls had anything to do with the Holocaust or supporting the aims of the Nazis to wipe Jews off the landscape. It was criminal. It carried criminal penalties at first, but there was worldwide uproar, particularly from Israel and the United States. And so they removed that penalty. It's still a civil, you know, it's you can sue. You can get sued. And, and journalists have been sued. Academics have been sued. Polish academics who cover the kinds of topics that I covered in here about the suppression of this history have had funding cut. It's an ongoing real problem. The other thing that happened, particularly to some leading academics, a Canadian professor named Grabowski and a Polish academic named Barbara Engelking, they were sued for libel libeling someone who's dead, which we don't have here. (laughs) And what was so astonishing in that case was that the judge found that every poll has the right to a positive national history and pride in that history. And that is a right that is at least equal to your other rights. And that is that case, that ruling was overturned on appeal, but that notion, that legal notion, is something that is not necessarily going to stay just in Poland. It's a concept about denying and suppressing history that I find very problematic. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. I'm going because we're invited by the mayor of our family hometown. But anybody can sue, right? (laughs) Judy Rakowski talks about the legal risks she faces in returning to Poland. You're listening to WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back to our conversation with Judy Rakowski. I'm your host, Libby Collins. You said you're going back to Poland in a few weeks. You've written a book that has gotten rave reviews internationally. Uh, the, the New York Times, certainly. Israeli newspapers. Are you afraid that you, once you cross that border and you are within that country that they could then go after you civilly? It's crossed my mind. (laughs) I'm told I shouldn't worry about it by some people I respect, but I'm going because we're invited by the mayor of our family hometown, a place where my family thrived for hundreds of years, and they're going to honor my cousin Sam, who just turned 99, and he's not strong enough to make that journey. The people there want to honor him and to honor you know, our contributions. And, and there's a lot of young, wonderful people and teachers that are curious and interested. And I really, in this book, said how I became connected to the place. And I appreciate so many good people and what's going on there. And I hope that balances the impression. I don't know what the government would, how it would benefit from taking action against me. But what is concerning the libel case that was brought against those professors I mentioned, it wasn't by the government. It was by, it's like government-funded, we call them NGOs, non-government organizations, but they're actually like quasi-government. Anyway, anybody can sue, right? (laughs) So, yes, I'm mindful of that. In describing this law, and you said it's not just in Poland, are you fearful of nationalism, particularly within the European borders? I think that nationalism is a challenge that's going on in many parts of the globe, 
we know about Hungary and, you know, places that are, that get, you know, grab those headlines. But the, the notion that you are entitled to a purely positive view of your history is, does not have a border right now. And I was hearing someone, an author of something that had to do with Russia speak recently, and he was talking about how every country has some dark chapters of their past. And if we outlaw them and not we don't let anyone know about the past, how can we possibly learn from mistakes? Wisconsin middle schoolers and high schoolers were part of a, a nationwide survey, and they scored well on their knowledge of the Holocaust, but they also, 63% of them, said they could see the possibility, or significant possibility, of something like that happening again. So how can we keep horrors of history from happening again if we can't learn about them? Let's go back to Sam. 99 years old. You mentioned that he was part of Steven Spielberg's Shoah Project. He has a movie about him and another friend who's a Holocaust survivor who's nominated for Academy Awards. And, of course, he's a huge part of the book that you've written, Jews in the Garden. Do you think a movie's going to be made of this book? Oh, because wow. it's a heck of a story, Judy. That would be really cool. I was there when he had the reunion with this guy, Jack, that is the basis of the documentary. And, you know, these guys had shoveled coal side by side at a camp. And Sam was speaking at a U.S. Holocaust Museum gala a year ago, March. <laughs> this guy comes across the room and he says, my brother. Yeah, it was it was extraordinary. My cousin is beyond extraordinary. He's sharp as a tack. He can still remember facts and argue with me about them <laughs> to this day. And he's a force of nature. And it's a force that I hope inspires a lot of people because it's inspired me to kind of think about some of my problems aren't as big as they, <laughs> they could be. Coming up on WTMJ Conversations. People learn to hate. I don't think anyone's born hating and ready to go kill people. Author Judy Rakowski talks about the parallels between what happened to Holocaust victims and what members of Hamas did to Israeli citizens. Now, more of WTMJ Conversations. Welcome back to WTMJ Conversations. I'm Libby Collins. This past week, I received very sad news from Judy Rakowski that Sam, the subject of the book Jews in the Garden, had passed away. And Judy, I know he was 99 years old. He had lived a very, very rich and full life. But it's still very sad that he's no longer with you. Absolutely. After my book was published, we visited him in Florida. I spoke at his community and we celebrated one week early his 99th birthday. And he was becoming more frail. And it was just remarkable after he has survived so many things. It seemed like he was just always going to be there. And of course, that's, you know, not realistic. And it's just really hard that I can't call him up and tell him the latest thing that I saw in the news or about Poland, because I was really, it just made things much more complete when I could share them with him. Over the last couple of weeks, we have seen an attack on Israel by Hamas. And every day, 
we learn more and more about the horrors that were committed against very innocent people. And it seems to me that there is a striking resemblance to what you write about in your book. When I go to Poland, I am always struck by the fact that I can walk around freely and not worry. But in another time, a few decades back, seems more recent than we want to think, I could not have been able to do that. And I've been struck very deeply by these horrible terrorist attacks that once again, this hatred of Jews, whether, you know, people are saying, oh, well, there's a land dispute, there's policy disputes, but people have been murdering Jews in wholesale fashion for thousands of years just because they're Jews. And it's very, very, very upsetting. You would think after all these years, there would be things that we would have learned from the Holocaust. They always say you should remember so it doesn't happen again. We just don't seem to learn unless there's something visceral and recent. And it's really sad. You know, some people, when my book came out, they said, oh, that's not a beach read. Oh, I don't know if I want to read something that grim. And now everyone's riveted again to, you know, what's happening. And I just wish we didn't have to keep seeing things, horrible atrocities happen for us to remember that we can't hate. I mean, hate just doesn't get us anywhere. And here we are again. I know Sam was was quite ill before he passed away. But was he aware of any of what was going on in Israel? He was. Uh, of course, you know, his wife is was born in Israel, and there, we all have a lot of, you know, there's family deployed, there's family in harm's way, and some very, very close. I don't know how much he was thinking about it, but I, it just can't help thinking about him going from escaping Nazi concentration camps, getting to Israel, fighting in the Haganah before the country was a state, and being wounded in the Negev. And I hope it wasn't all registering that what he fought for, and he was wounded, you know, shot in the shoulder, and he was evacuated in what they now consider the first flight of the Israeli Air Force. You know, we should be farther along. But he was committed to talking to students, to young people, and to getting the message out. And that I really feel is a baton that I want to pick up that I think we all should think about because people learn to hate. I don't think anyone's born hating and ready to go kill people. So it's up to all of us. Judy Rakowski, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Libby. We've been talking with author Judy Rakowski about her book, Jews in the Garden. And it brings to mind those words, those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it, particularly as we reflect on what has happened in Israel over the last several weeks. If you joined us late and you want to hear our entire conversation with Judy, go to WTMJ.com, and it's important to share today's show with those you know and love. You'll also find a partial transcript courtesy of eCourt Reporters. For WTMJ Conversations, I'm Libby Collins.